And again, good morning to all of you. Welcome to Cross Point Church. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at Cross Point. And as Pastor Scott acknowledged, today is Mother's Day. And uh, we are so thankful for, for all the women in our church, whether you're a mom or not. Um, and I, I want to, you know, aside from the fact that moms work so hard and are so vital to what God is doing in the world, we also understand as a church that Mother's Day is a reminder to many women of just how broken our world is and how much pain and suffering and loss there is in our world. It just becomes personal for a lot of women on Mother's Day. And, um, and so we want to say to you today that we love you and we, we cherish you just like we do all moms. And I want to give you or offer you some hope this morning as we talk about the future that God has promised us in Jesus Christ. And the song that we just sang, I've never heard it before. Maybe it was new to you as well, but I couldn't think of a more fitting song for what we're going to be talking about this morning from God's Word. We're going to be talking about our future. And if you were here last week, you, you heard John Schmidtke say that Christianity is all about the future. Christianity is all about the future. No other worldview is so fixed on the future as the Christian worldview. Following Jesus means that our past does not define us. Jesus' past defines us. And that is why, as followers of Jesus, we must continually look back to the cross. That's where we learn who we are. That's where we see how, how desperately we need a Savior. That's where we see how much God loves us, is at the cross of Jesus. But more than that, it's the future that we need to fix our eyes on as followers of Jesus. And I want you to know that the way you live your life now depends on what you believe about the future. The way that you live your life today depends on what you believe about the future. And we've been in this series called Redefining the Good Life, and we, we keep saying that we need to change the way that we think about the good life so that our vision of the good life matches up with God's. And today, what we are saying is this. The good life is fixed on eternity. The good life is always fixed on eternity, on God's promised future for us. A few years ago, I felt that it was time for my son to learn how to ride a bike. And so, I think he was four at the time, and he had been riding a a bike with training wheels for a while, and so I took him out one day, and we went looking around at Roman Sales, and we found him a really cool-looking bike that didn't have training wheels I think it was like $10, and he was super excited about it. We bought the bike, we brought it home, and he started learning how to ride a bike without training wheels. And it was kind of a painful process, as you know. He, you know, he would, he would be able to ride for a few seconds, and then he would lose his balance, he would fall over, he'd skin, he skinned his knee, he hurt his arm, he had, you know, scabs and bruises all over his body, because that's kind of, (laughs) goes with the territory when you're learning how to ride a bike. And he was at, he got to a point where he was ready, this all happened, by the way, just over the course of a few days, it wasn't like weeks and weeks, but he got to the point where he was kind of ready to give up, and so I took him aside and I decided to give him a pep talk, as I often do with my children, it doesn't usually work, but I decided to do it anyway, and I said, Nolan, listen to me, buddy. When you learn how to ride a bike without, without training wheels, it's going to change your life. It's going to totally change your life. And I was dead serious when I said all of this, okay? I said, look, when I learned how to ride my bike, 
the, for the first time. It changed everything. I just wanted to ride my bike all the time. It was the thing I woke, it was, it was what got me up in, in the morning. I rode my bike all over the city when I was a kid. This is all true. I rode, I went over jumps, I went over curves, I went, I rode through rivers and through trails, and I, I jumped through the air. I would set up ramps in the alley, and then we would go to dirt, we would go to BMX tracks in the city, and we would fly through the air, and nothing gave me more joy as a child than riding my bike. And I want you to experience that. Nothing, I mean, it's so, it's so much fun. Nothing, nothing you've ever experienced would be as fun as this when you finally figure it out. And, he, and I don't know if he was picking up what I was laying down. I really don't. But interestingly enough, the same day that I gave him this pep talk, um, we had some neighbors down the street, an older couple, and their, their oldest daughter had come back home to visit from Canada with her three boys. And one of them was Nolan's age, and he had just learned how to ride a bike. And Nolan and I were standing outside playing basketball, and he came flying down the street without training wheels on his bike. And Nolan looked at him, and I looked at him. I was like, Nolan, did you see that? And, and Nolan was like, yeah. I was like, didn't that look like fun? He was like, yeah, can we get my bike out? And so it, was just, it, just, it just happened in an instant. He, all he needed was a vision of his future to take the next step. That's what he needed. He needed to see a kid his age, you know, his size, flying down the street on a bike like his, having the time of his life, ha- experiencing the freedom that I was trying to tell him about. He needed to see it with his own eyes. And then he got on his bike, and I'm not lying to you, he rode like... 20 or 30 feet without falling for the first time. He wanted it more than ever. And then he fell, but then he got up again. And within about an hour, he had it. And he, all he had to see was this kid experiencing it and to know that he could, that it was within his reach. He needed to see a picture of his own future. And today, I want to share with you a picture of God's promised future for everyone who relates to him as a father. And if we, as God's people, can embrace this picture of God's future for us. It'll change the way we live now. There's nothing we won't be able to get through as followers of God. It should change our lives completely. And so we're going to read from Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5 this morning, about the new heavens and the new earth. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along in your Bibles. You can just keep up with me by looking at the screen behind us. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is the word of God. The first question that we should ask about this passage is, is why was this written and who read it? Why was this written in the first place? And believe it or not, John, the Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation, did not write this so that we could have classes and sit around and debate about the various symbols and what they mean or develop these carefully elaborated 
um, systems and timelines concerning the end of history. That's not how we are to approach the book of Revelation at all. It's a thoroughly practical book that was written to people, real people, many of whom the apostle knew personally. And they were overwhelmed with stress and pressure and anxiety and trouble. Because this is at the end of the first century, a time when Christians were being persecuted and even executed for sport in the Roman world. And John means to give these people comfort and hope for the future. That's why he's writing this. Because people need hope. They need something real to cling to, to hang on to during one of the hardest periods of their life. These are people who are facing immense pressure and anxiety about their future. Their lives are in danger. They're watching Christians around them be killed. They're watching sometimes their own children being taken away and slaughtered. These people need a new kind of hope that will enable them to stand firm as they are daily being pressured to walk away from Jesus. That's why we have this passage. It's so that we can get through the darkness, the dark times. And then I want you to think, I want you to think about this for a minute. So many people have believed that eternity is about individual souls rising up to escape this earth, to be in heaven. But that's not what's described here at all. Jesus, or I'm sorry, John sees heaven coming down to us. And our experience in God's new world is not described as some disembodied existence where we hover around like spirits and we become one with everything around us. The future kingdom of God is described in very physical terms. We will eat, we will walk, we will hug and kiss and dance. Surroundings are likened to pure gold and other precious gems and jewels and stones, both we and our environment will be solid and permanent. So think about this. Salvation is not described as an escape from this world. It's described as the transformation of this world. Heaven is not the removal of this world. It's the renewal of it, according to this passage. Author Eugene Peterson describes this passage this way. He says, There's not so much as a hint of escapism. This is not a long eternal weekend away from the responsibilities of employment and citizenship, but the intensification and healing of them. Heaven is formed out of the dirty streets and murderous alleys, adulterous bedrooms and corrupt courts, hypocritical synagogues and commercialized churches, thieving tax collectors and traitorous disciples. A city but now a holy city. This is the vision we get of eternal life. He's saying that when history comes to a close, God is not going to wipe our world away and start over. He's going to redeem his world. And that's how we should understand the word new. The word new here is used four times, and there's two different Greek words uh, in in the New Testament used that are translated new, One of them refers to newness in time, something that is brand new that never existed before. And the other word new represents something that is a new kind of quality or has something that has a new nature. And that is the word that's used in this passage. This passage is all about newness. It's all about renewal. 
Now, every one of us can relate to longing for something new. We're obsessed with the new in our American culture. We all are. We all want new phones. I mean, there's this kind of scary fever pitch anytime Apple releases their latest version of the, of the iPhone, and some people will do almost anything to have it. It's like as soon as the new version's released, their old, version becomes u- or their old phone becomes useless and worthless to them. The older I get, the faster things seem to get outdated. If you're a college student, you can't have last year's textbook. You can't have last year's haircut. You can't have last year's model. There's always this pressure to upgrade and have the new thing. And we just eat that up. We all, want, we all want the newest thing. And the reason I think we're fascinated with new things is that God has placed eternity in our hearts. In, a, in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes that. God has placed eternity in our hearts. A constant longing for renewal. That's what that means. We all have this deeply ingrained in our innermost being, this longing for renewal, this longing for eternity. And the reason is that we see and feel the decay caused by sin all around us and even inside of us. We know that we are aging. We know that we are headed towards death and that no matter how hard we work out or how well we eat and how well we take care of our bodies, we're going to keep getting older. We're going to keep getting more wrinkled. We're going to keep getting saggier and less firm. And eventually we're going to grow weak and die. I hate to remind you of that, but it's it's coming for all of us. And you might be able to slow down that process, but there's no way you can stop it. That is the curse of every person and every living thing, including the earth itself. It's all falling apart. Everything is subject to decay because that is God's response to sin. And here's what God is telling us in this passage today about our future. In Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus, we will experience newness without decay. Can you imagine that with me this morning? Newness without decay. Think about that. Have you ever experienced that in your life? Newness without decay. With God's presence, things just get newer and newer and brighter and brighter. There's no decay, no boredom, no slow fade. There's only newness over and over again. That's what we're told. Have you ever read a Bible verse that... that some of you have been following Jesus for a long time. You, maybe you've read, a, you've read a Bible verse or you've heard it a hundred times or maybe hundreds of times. And for some reason, one day you read this verse and it's like you're read it for, reading it for the first time. You saw something there that you'd never seen before and it changed you. Has that ever happened to you? It changed the way you thought about God. It changed the way you related to God. It somehow changed the way that you lived. You saw something or felt something that, or heard something When you read that verse, the 137th time, and it was like you were reading it for the first time, do you know what that is? That's newness without decay. That's what that is. That is what every moment will be like in the presence of God without sin. When this world is renewed, when when we are raised to be with Christ, that's what we will experience every moment. And we just get a taste of it now. As we follow God, newness without decay. When did that start, by the way? When did this new creation begin? When When did eternal life begin? 
Well, there's one event in history that the biblical authors tell us was the turning point. You know what it is? The resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is when this new, this, this newness without decay started. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul writes about it. This is what he says. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or, or who have died. For as by, by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Victory over death, victory over sin, victory over decay. That's what we were just singing about. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus. What this and many passages are are promising us is that Jesus' past is our future. Just like I was trying to tell my son Nolan, 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 my past, I mean, I don't ride BMX anymore, so I was telling him about my past, right? My past is your future. If you could only experience what I've experienced on a bike, flying through the air, there's nothing, there's no thrill like it. And, and here we're told that Jesus' past is our future, rising up from the grave with a new body, victory over death, glory. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead with an imperishable, immortal, glorified body, we will be raised. Anyone who's a follower of Jesus, we will experience that, just like Jesus did. Our new bodies will not be created out of nothing. They will be created from this. This is called our, the seed. Our new bodies will be the full-grown plant. Take Jesus' resurrected body, for example. What was it like? He resembled a human being. He did not look like an angel or an alien. He was recognizable. His hands and feet still have nail marks. His side still has some kind of hole or scar. But he could walk through walls His body was fundamentally spiritual, and yet you can see and touch him. He ate meals. He was more physical and permanent than ever. God's new creation will be like that. It will be this earth, but it will be transformed, renewed, and completely purged from sin. One of the most famous verses in the Old Testament, I don't know if you've ever thought about this verse this way before. I I bet you've all heard this verse before. From the book of Isaiah, And it's about our future. And this is what it says. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That's about our future. In God's kingdom, in God's new world. Did you know know what the average age in the United States is? For people who run in a marathon for the first time, you know what the average age is for a first-time marathon runner? 42. 42, that's my age. I was really sh- kind of shocked when I heard that. Why is it 42? Is it that 42-year-olds have the most capable bodies for marathons? I don't think so. 
Is it that 42-year-olds are in better better physical condition than 22-year-olds? No, of course not. I think this is the reason. 42-year-old people are longing for eternity. We want to test this verse. We we are thinking about our mortality for the first time. We are wanting to to defy the aging process. We're trying to push back the clock. We want to know how far we can run before we fall exhausted. We want to be young again. That's why it's the average age. But in God's new world, marathons will be pointless. And I'm happy about that. Because everyone will be able to run forever. Forever. And never grow tired. No more weariness. No more tiredness. No more exhaustion. Newness without decay. That's what's coming to us. You know, we could talk all morning about about this new world and what it will be like. How many senses will we have? We have five senses right now. How many senses will we have in God's new world with our new bodies? Who knows? What will this world be like if this is just the seed? When God finishes what he started. But the truth is, because of sin, we can't really understand or know what it will be like. We just, we, we don't know. We can talk about it. We can use our imaginations. We can, we can dream about it. And there's nothing wrong with that. But we don't know for sure because of sin. And, but there is something we do know about God's new world for sure. We know what it will not be like. It will not be like death. It will not be like mourning. It will not be like crying or pain. The new earth will not be like that. There will be no trace of sin. It will be a place where righteousness dwells and where God wipes away every tear and where there's no more death and no more sorrow, and no more pain. It's a place where God's glory fills every corner and every space. A place where joy is everywhere. And I personally think that joy might be the most single telling characteristic of God's new heavens and new earth. Joy. Joy with no obstacles. Jonathan Edwards is Maybe one of, the, one of the best thinkers about heaven that we've ever known. And this is what he says he's, about heaven. He says, And oh, what joy there will be springing up in the hearts of the saints after they have passed through the wearisome pilgrimage to be brought to such a paradise as this. Here is joy unspeakable indeed and full of glory. Joy that is humble, holy, enrapturing, and divine in its perfection. The English author G.K. Chesterton said this about heaven's joy. He said, Because children have abounding vitality, because they, they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown up person does it again until he's nearly dead. For grown up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, is it possible God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may be that he has this eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. Now think about that for a minute. You've all experienced that with a child, I'm sure. I remember a couple months ago seeing a a video that my brother-in-law posted, um, 
on Instagram or something, and, and they have uh, Mark and Lindy, who were up here, our worship directors earlier, they have triplets, and they're coming up on a year old soon. And there was this one time where Mark was just like dropping something on the ground, and Dax was just laughing incessantly over and over again. He was just dropping something on the ground, and, and, and this kid was probably laughing until it hurt over and over and over again. Just, you know, do it again, do it again, do it again. And my wife and I were laughing so hard Not at what Mark was doing, but because of this baby and how much joy they were getting from such a seemingly meaningless, simple thing, like dropping something on the ground. What is that? That's pure joy. That that is, according to G.K. Chesterton, that's a picture of life with God. A childlike joy that we lose because of sin. You see, because we are so easily bored with life. And we get so easily bored with God. We're always on the lookout for the next best thing. We're always looking for more pleasure and more satisfaction and more excitement. So our attention is being continually drawn away from the pure and simple pleasures of life that are from God to chase things that aren't from Him. But God is, as Van Morrison once wrote, the youth of a thousand summers. The youth of a thousand summers. God is never bored. God never gets tired of us. He never gets tired of his creation. He never gets tired of beauty. He never gets tired of redeeming people. He never gets tired of blessing people and changing people and loving people. And God never gets tired of himself. When you think about God and you think about eternal life with him, does it sound boring to you? Isn't that why we sometimes invent fantasies or ideas about what heaven will be like for us? As if our experience of heaven will be something different from everyone else's. And, you know, as if, you know, heaven is relative to us and what we want. I mean, come on. What if heaven is simply a constant rush of God's glory and beauty and power and life running through our resurrected bodies? What if we are all singing the same song? What if we are all experiencing the same glory? What if God's glory and God's word and God's presence never got old? That's the new heavens and new earth. What if heaven's the place where we just keep saying to God, do it again? Do it again. Do it again. Tim Chester sums it up well. He said, Now we are old and tired and cynical, but then we will be young again, forever young, forever delighting in God. Newness without decay. Have you ever seen a fearless child? It has to be a fearless child, okay? Have you ever seen a fearless, because that's what we'll be in heaven. We'll be like fearless children. There will be no fear in heaven. We'll be like fearless children. Have you ever seen a fearless child experience water for the first time? Or puppies? Or kittens? Or rain? Or mud? Or puddles? The simple things in life? They are thrilled by these things. I've never seen an adult play in the mud who was sober. (laughs) But I've seen children play in the mud tirelessly. And get more joy than ever. I mean, we've all seen it. 
And they're completely happy. Think about puddles. What is it about puddles? A kid sees a puddle and they're just drawn to it. They want to just jump in there. It's like a new world. What could be in there? They want to jump into things that we try to avoid. Kids do. Kids are able to receive things that we are not. And maybe that's why Jesus said, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. All over our world, there is sadness, there is brokenness, there is pain. But all over God's kingdom, there's joy. We're told that anytime a sinner repents, anytime a sinner turns back to God for life, there is rejoicing in heaven. There's a party. Any, anytime even one sinner comes back to God. And do you know why that is? Because that is God recreating his universe by rescuing one sinner at a time. That's a sign of things to come. Anytime a sinner turns back to God and says, God, you made me. I'm yours. You died to redeem me. I'm giving up my right to live my life however I want. Anytime a sinner takes, talks that way to God, a miracle happens. That person is remade. They are renewed. They are rescued. They are recreated in the image of Jesus. They're transformed. And one day their body will be resurrected to live forever in God's new world. They will be remade into the image of Jesus and never die again. They will never hunger and never thirst and never again feel sorrow or pain. They'll be filled with love and joy and righteousness and will never get tired of being in God's presence and singing God's praises and taking in God's glory. A couple weeks ago, I told you how 19 years ago, through a series of what I would call miraculous events, I decided to follow Jesus and leave everything else behind. Now, my mom and dad were already following Jesus for many years, and they had been praying for me, and they could not believe. I, I was so far away from God when God rescued me. I'm not going to go into the details, but the transformation that took place in my life was nothing short of miraculous. And my parents could not believe the changes that they were seeing in my life. I was changing from being a completely self-centered, isolated, destructive person to a selfless, loving, life-giving follower of Jesus. And I'm still growing into that, and I always will be. But my parents were amazed at what they were seeing. And they got me this night, and I looked for it this week. I don't know where it is, because they got it for me about 19 years ago, and it's probably in a box somewhere, I don't know. But they got me this framed, like, kind of plaque with a Bible verse on it. And they wrote a note on the back, and the verse was this from Revelation 21.5. It was, Behold, I'm making all things new. That was the verse. That's what my parents saw in my life. You see, because my parents understood that the changes that were happening in my life were a picture of what is to come. Those, th those things, those little things that they saw, those little changes that they saw in my life were a guarantee to them of, of the new heavens and new earth. Redemption complete. My parents saw God renewing the universe by renewing me. Now, I'm not an expert on heaven. I'm not an expert on eternal life. 
In fact, the more that I study it, the more that I think about it, I feel like the less I know. I've spent many hours, you know, looking into these passages like this and thinking about what God's new heaven and earth will be like. But I am full of sin, and I cannot see this clearly. As a sinner, I cannot get my head around what this experience with God will be like when sin is removed. And this has been a big problem for me over the years, and I know it's been a big problem for you too. This is the battle. This is the tension we live with every day. The world we live in now and the world we're made for. That's the Christian life. That's our struggle. And we get so focused on the now and the the pain and the disappointment and the new things that we want now, that we can experience now. And we so easily lose sight of the world we're made for. Eternity. I remember... Some years ago, it was right before one of my, my, what Vicky was pregnant, I think it was with our fourth child. And I remember telling my friends, we were talking about the end of the world, and I remember, we don't talk about that often, and for some reason we were talking about the end of the world, and I remember telling my friends, I don't want Jesus to come back until after she's born. And they kind of laughed it off, my friends did. But I was serious. I really wanted to see this new child. And then she was born, and it was wonderful, and, and then I, I kind of joked after she was born, my friends asked me, but I was like, yep, I'm ready for Jesus to come back now. But that was foolish of me to say. It really was. You know why? Because if any one of us could experience just one minute of eternity, life with God, in God's presence, Nothing standing in the way. God's glory, pure, unfiltered, no more sin. If we could experience that for one minute, we would all be saying together, come Lord Jesus, come now. It's all we would think about. It's all we would talk about. Everything else that you treasure would fade into the background. Some of you may think that it would be great if Jesus would just wait to return until your baby was born or until you got married or until you walk your daughter down the aisle or you fill in the blank. But that's a scary thought to me because the Bible continually points out that people who love Jesus can't wait for him to come back. And no amount of trouble or pain can throw them off track. If we really knew what was coming to us, we would never give up. No trial, no loss, no amount of heartache would keep us down. Nothing would slow us down because heaven is coming to us. Our greatest desire in life should be God with us. Eternal life. That's what we're made for. And that's why Paul, in the book of Philippians, I'm going to leave you with this verse. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 He said this amazing thing. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Do you agree with that today? Can you say that about your life? When you look around at your relationships and your victories and your disappointments and maybe the things that you're looking forward to, whatever your vision of the good life is or the thing that you're aiming for in life, that future that you dream about, Can you say today, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain? Death would be even better. 
Because then I'll get to see my Savior face to face. Please join me in prayer. Our Father God, we thank you for your glory today. We thank you that in Jesus Christ, we are promised life without end. A life where you, God, are with us. Where there is no more sin and no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more exhaustion, no more stress or anxiety or worry or fear. Only newness and brightness over and over again. Newness without decay. God, your word is, is full of so many great and precious promises. But I'm not sure there's a better picture of your love and mercy and grace than what we read today in Revelation 21. This vision you've, you gave to the Apostle John to give to us should change the way we live now. It should change everything about the way we think and how we relate to you, how we relate to disappointment, how we, re, how we, how we process pain and sorrow and, and loss. Lord, help us today to embrace your future. Help us to embrace eternal life today. Help us to long for it. Help us to long for your presence more than we long for everything else. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.